Dave, I really can't go on presenting these podcasts, though you are awfully kind. I'm not kind, I'm just tempting you. I never give anything without expecting something in return. I always get paid. If you think I'll take the podcast over just to pay for the privilege, I won't. Open your eyes and look at me. No. No, I don't think I will edit you. Although you need editing badly. That's what's wrong with you. You should be edited, and often, by someone who knows how. You're a conceited, black-hearted varmint, Dave Butler, and I don't know why I let you come and co-present with me. I'll show you why, Jen. The Jodcast. Surprisingly witless. With Megan Argo, David Alt, Jen Gupta, Stuart Lowe, Ian Morrison and Mark Perver. The Jodcast. January 2011 edition. Hello and welcome to The Jodcast. And we are five years old this month. And to celebrate, we have five presenters for your show today. Just about, by the wonder of the internet. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Hi, Hi Dave. Dave. Hi, everyone. Five years, eh? I know. It's been a long time. Hard to believe. So our very first show yeah. was in January 2006. How many of you have been there yep. since the beginning? Because I haven't. I haven't. Dave, Megan it's, and I all uh, have. Yes. yes. Yep. And uh, Ian Morrison and Tim... They've both been here as mm-hmm. well since the beginning. And it is at this point that we remember Nick. I wasn't even born when the show was started. <laughs> <laughs> You're not quite that young. Well, in the show, we're going to catch up with Michael Kramer, five years on from that first ever Jodcast interview back in January 2006. We, as Jodcasters, answer some of your questions, and we'll find out what you can see in the night sky in January. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month, chemically peculiar dwarfs and direct imaging of a four-planet system. Most stars are largely composed of hydrogen nuclei. Fusion of these nuclei produces helium, which, if the conditions in the stellar core are right, can then fuse to create heavier and heavier nuclei, up through the periodic table to iron. Elements heavier than iron are found in the atmospheres of stars, however, but these elements are created not in stellar cores through the normal fusion process, but in the outer layers of massive stars, or in the highly energetic environments of supernova explosions. Measuring the abundances of various chemicals in stellar environments can lead to an understanding of the chemistry and history of a star. And now a team of astronomers have found a star with unusually large amounts of several heavy elements. Hot subdwarfs are a class of small star near the end of their lives. The team were investigating why the class of helium-rich hot B subdwarfs have far less hydrogen in their outer layers than other similar stars. Using the 3.9-metre Anglo-Australian telescope at Siding Springs in New South Wales, Australia, the astronomers looked at the optical spectrum of one particular B subdwarf, located some 2,000 light-years away from the Sun. What they found were signatures of several chemicals that would normally be expected to appear in the atmosphere of such a star, but the spectra also showed several strong features that were less easy to identify. Modelling of spectral features from various elements at the high temperatures found in subdwarf atmospheres showed that the lines were due to the elements zirconium, yttrium, strontium, and germanium, at abundances between 1 and 10,000 times normal. This is the first detection of such high abundances in this type of star, so what causes such a strong detection? These chemicals are all heavier than iron, so are not produced in normal fusion processes in stellar cores. They are known to be created in a process known as slow neutron capture, 
in the outer envelopes of large, so-called asymptotic giant branch stars. One suggestion for the apparent abundances seen here is that the material could have been dredged up from inside the star, but this requires the star to contain a very large amount of these heavy elements, with no clear mechanism for how they were created or acquired, since there is no evidence of a nearby asymptotic giant branch star which could have donated such material. Another theory is that a combination of settling due to gravity, upward movement via radiation and convection, together with chemical diffusion, could lead to the formation of cloud-like layers in the star's atmosphere. Different cloud layers would contain larger amounts of different chemicals, with the surrounding atmosphere being correspondingly deficient. This would explain the observed strong abundances of chemicals such as zirconium, without requiring an additional source of material, or an unusual evolutionary pathway. Most exoplanets detected are found indirectly, either through the apparent wobble of the parent star, caused by the gravitational pull of orbiting planets, or the dimming of the star as a planet passes in front of it, blocking out some of the star's light. Some planets, however, have been detected through direct imaging. Now, a group have directly detected a fourth planet in a system already known to contain three massive planetary bodies. The detection of these planets was made in the infrared part of the spectrum, where hot objects shine brightly. The planets in this system formed only recently, less than 100 million years ago, so are still warm, and the three planets already known all have wide orbits, making them easier to spot over the much brighter central star. The new planet, designated HR8799e, is orbiting the star with a period of roughly 50 years, and is much closer than the other planets in the system, separated from the star by just 14.5 times the distance between the Earth and the Sun, a distance known as the astronomical unit. The images were made using the Keck telescope in Hawaii, and use a technique known as angular differential imaging, which allows the bright central star to be subtracted from the image, allowing much fainter planets to be seen. This planetary system resembles a scaled-up version of the outer planets in our own solar system, with each of the four known planets several times more massive than Jupiter, and belts of debris located at distances from the star where the temperatures are similar to those in the more familiar asteroid and Kuiper belts around the Sun. More than 500 extrasolar planets are now known. This particular discovery is notable because it poses problems for theories of planetary formation. HR8799 is the only known system where multiple giant planets orbit at distances greater than 25 astronomical units. Outer giant planets are thought to form by fragmentation of the debris disk surrounding a young star, but the newly discovered planet orbits HR8799 at a distance where the disk would have been neither cool enough nor rotating slowly enough for fragmentation to happen. The other prevailing model of planetary formation is that a core of solid material forms and accumulates material from the surrounding cloud. HR8799e is too close to the star for fragmentation to be the formation mechanism, while the other gas giants in the system are too far away for accumulation to have been the cause. Because of the similarities of the planets, neither mechanism can explain the formation of the entire planetary system. It could be that the planets were all formed much further out than their current locations, and then migrated inwards towards the star. Or they formed much closer in, and then migrated outwards to their current locations. But both of these theories also have their problems. While large planets like these are the easiest to spot, it may be that there are also a population of smaller, rocky planets located closer to the star, which future developments in technology could allow us to detect. And finally, scheduled to perform a manoeuvre on December the 7th that would take it into orbit around Venus, Japan's Akatsuki spacecraft malfunctioned and will now have to wait for another opportunity to enter orbit. The probe carried a variety of instruments to investigate the planet's atmosphere, and was scheduled to enter orbit around Venus on December the 7th, 
following a twelve-minute burn of the orbital manoeuvring engine. Data from the spacecraft indicated that the burn started on time, but, after a blackout due to the probe passing behind the planet, communications were not restored when expected. Since the engines only fired for three minutes, instead of the twelve required to enter orbit, the probe missed the planet and will now continue on its orbit around the Sun. A variety of images taken as the spacecraft passed the planet showed that the scientific instrumentation appears to be functioning as expected. The Japanese space agency, JAXA, are hopeful that by placing the probe in hibernation to minimize battery use, they can prolong Akatsuki's life long enough that it may be able to enter orbit in six years, when its current orbital path once again takes it close to the planet. Thanks for that, Megan. Now, uh, for our interview this year, we are revisiting Michael Kramer, who, as we said before, was our first interviewee back five years ago. So a lot has happened in five years since that first interview. In fact, he's no longer Dr. Michael Kramer, he's now Professor Michael Kramer. And he's one of the directors of the Max Planck Institute for Radio Astronomy in Bonn, Germany. So Mark went to talk to him to find out what's been happening over the past five years. For the fifth anniversary, we've got our very first interviewee back, and he's actually my own PhD supervisor, Dr. Michael... I should say Professor Michael Kramer. Now. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that was, a, that was a slip of the tongue. <laughs> Good start. Yes. <laughs> We're actually doing this remotely, and um, you're in Bonn, in Germany. Yes. So in the interview five years ago with Nick Rattenbury, it was all about the double pulsar system. I thought we'd come back to that and see what more we know about it now than we did five years ago. Yes, so the double pulsar is a a unique system in the sense that it's the only binary system where we have two active radio pulsars orbiting each other. That by itself is amazing, but it's also the most relativistic system that we know today. It's uh, much more relativistic than the famous Hulse-Taylor binary pulsar for which uh, the Nobel Prize was awarded in 1993. This one here has an orbit of only two and a half hours and orbital velocities of a million kilometers per hour. And, And so it's a system of a fast rotating 22 millisecond pulsar, which is old, and a young, somewhat slow rotating pulsar with a period of 2.77 seconds. And it's it's such an amazing system that we use it for very precise tests of general relativity or other theories of gravity. So we've got these two extremely dense objects, and they're so compact that they can get very close together, and that's what gives us the very strong gravitational fields. That's right. The, The whole orbit fits easily into the sun. So that shows how close the pulsars orbit each other. And so they feel the gravitational field of the companion, and uh, therefore we can test by using them as clocks. We can use them as test masses, how they fall in the gravitational potential of the companion. Five years ago, that system had been discovered, I think, a couple of years before, and all the investigations into it were ongoing. Researchers were timing when the pulses from those objects arrived, to try and work out the orbital mechanics of the system. What do we know now from the additional five years we've had timing it? Well, first of all, we have improved the precision to which we have measured these relativistic parameters by often an order of magnitude or so. Hence, that is improving our ability to test general activity as well. We have also found new effects in this pulsar which we didn't see before, And sadly, also, because of the very same effect that we discovered, one of the puzzles has now temporarily disappeared. And um, I can say a bit more about that. 
But just to demonstrate the precision, for instance, we now, for instance, have measured that the orbit is shrinking every day by 7.152 millimeters. And we have measured that to a precision of 0.008 millimeters per day. So that's the kind of precision that we have today, which is much, much better than what we had five years ago. And because of the shrinkage of this orbit of these small mounds, these stars will collide in 85 million years. So what's causing them to come together gradually? The masses orbit each other, and by doing this, they produce gravitational waves, ripples in space-time that carry away energy from the system. And if you remove energy from a binary system, the stars get closer to each other, and that leads to the shrinkage of the orbit. Well, gravitational waves is something I think we'll come back to a little bit later in the interview. One thing I wanted to ask you about that you mentioned five years ago, and it ties in with what you said about one of the pulsars not being visible, is um, it seemed at that time in 2006 as though one of the pulsars might be turning on and off, or it might be variable in its emission, or perhaps the companion uh, pulsar was somehow modulating its emission. So what do we know about that? That was still the case. The on and off pattern is more or less the same, although we did see some variations so changes from the pattern that we observed five years ago. We were speculating in the publication some years ago whether this is due to the changing geometry of the system where the spin axis is processing in space. So it, it's gradually pointing in a different direction, and that's caused by a relativistic effect that we call geodetic precession. So we're wondering if something will eventually lead to uh, a disappearance of the pulsar, and that actually happened earlier last year. We had a very nice publication in 2008 with colleagues from Canada, where we um, could show that the, the pulsar, which also shows eclipses, by the way, um, has a changing eclipse pattern. And we could show that this is due to this changing orientation of the slow spinning pulsar. So we measured the rate by which it processes, and which is, again, in agreement with general relativity. But uh, it leads also to the fact that the pulsar beam is eventually not pointing towards the Earth anymore. That's exactly what happens. The pulsar beam has moved out of our line of sight, and uh, therefore the pulsar is still active, but uh, not visible as a radio pulsar right now. But it eventually will come back and will reappear as a double pulsar once more. Is there going to be a time when it's going to disappear from our line of sight for a long time? Well, it depends a little bit on the unknown structure of the pulsar beam, how wide it is, what is the internal structure, and so on. The current modeling, which was done by a PhD student in West Virginia, suggests that the beam will not be visible for the next 15 years or so. But don't worry, that's okay, because we have measured the orbit of the second pulsar precisely, and that's all we need to do our test of general activity. The improvement that we still get in our test will now come from pulsar A, as we call it, alone. And that will improve with time very nicely. So we will be able to do much, much better tests of GR in the future, even though we don't need to observe the second pulse anymore. Okay, so it, as you said in the first interview, it really was quite lucky to find it, not only uh, because they're quite rare, but because systems like that wouldn't be expected to be visible to us for most of the time. That's right. So this has clearly shown that if you would have done the survey which discovered the pulsar today, we would not have seen it as a double pulsar because the second pulsar is not visible. And on the same token, we are continuing to look back at all the other double Newton star systems where we have one pulsar and an unseen companion. 
And we can expect that at some day, one of those pulsars will appear as a double pulsar. It gives and takes. So it's, it's a very nice situation, actually. Now, I know there's a number of surveys ongoing still to find more pulsars. In 2006, you said there were 1,700 pulsars known about. Off the top of my head, it might be a little over 2,000 by now. That's correct. We've discovered about 300 pulsars since, and we are off for a rather big increase in the very near future using a telescope in Australia, the Parkes telescope again, and also a telescope in, in Germany, the um, Effelsberg telescope. We're doing an all-sky survey of the whole sky with uh, unprecedented sensitivity and frequency and time resolution. So we expect many hundreds of new pulsars from that survey and at the same time, this new telescope that's been commissioned in Europe, LOFA, will have a sensitivity to look at very faint local Newton stars. And that should produce another several hundred, maybe thousand pulsars. So I think over the next couple of years, there will be a huge increase in the number of pulsars again. Could we hope to find a system that's even better for testing GR, even more strongly gravitating than the double pulsar system? That's one of the aims of this all-sky survey that we do, where we also search the galactic plane again. And it's the galactic plane where we expect this very tight binary pulsar system because um, usually any supernova explosion that creates a pulsar disrupts any binary system. So only those systems where the supernova was such that the kick on a Newton star, as you call it, was small, can survive two explosions to form a double Newton star or even a pulsar black hole system. So it hasn't moved much away from its birthplace, which is the galactic plane. So we hope that with this new survey, we can penetrate much deeper into the galactic plane and are more sensitive to these very interesting compact binary systems. I guess finally on the double pulsar, is there any hint yet that we can go beyond general relativity? Is there any suggestion that it might be inaccurate at all yet? So far, the prediction of general relativity has all proved to be very correct. And we, we probe this now at the level of 10 to the minus 5. So we don't see any deviation yet. But on the other hand, there is indeed the expectation, at least from some of the researchers, that general relativity is not our last word in the understanding of gravity. It's an extremely good theory, which must be very close to the truth. But we know that uh, we can't combine it with quantum mechanics, which is another excellent theory that we know on small scales. So they are inconsistent with each other. Not both theories can be right at the same time. One must be wrong. And whether it's quantum mechanics or the model of particle physics or whether it's relativity, we don't know the answer to that yet. But by pushing our experiments to more and more extreme systems, we can try to break one of these theories, whether it's at CERN with the LHC or whether it's with very extreme binary systems using pulsars, we don't know. But it's an interesting question. Not both theories can be right at the same time. Is it something like 99.999% correct then? Yeah, something like that. <laughs> 99.999, I think. Okay, yes. <laughs> pretty good. Uh, it's, it's fun because you keep observing the system and with every photon that you receive from the pulsar, your tests get better. So it's, it's a very fortunate situation that we are in. So for instance, we have measured the period of the pulsar now to a precision of 0.2 picoseconds. Picoseconds, so how much is that of a second? 
It's about 10 to the minus 13 or so. And we have measured the orbital period, which is uh, says about two and a half hours. We have measured that to a precision of 691 nanoseconds. Quite precise. Yes. So we can keep track of all the rotations of the pulsars over the whole time since we've discovered it. Yes, we haven't lost a single count. That's right. I mean, this precision that we have with pulsars allows us to do all these interesting experiments. And as you were referring to at the beginning, one of the other nice experiments that we do right now is trying to detect gravitational waves using this precise measurement that we can do with, with pulsars. Gravitational waves was actually another thing I was going to talk about. We mentioned that the double pulsar system is giving out gravitational waves, but a, a big effort in pulsar timing is now towards using pulsars actually as the tools to detect gravitational waves coming from other sources. Could you tell us a little bit about how that works? In fact, it's a rather simple experiment in concept. What happens is that if you observe a number of pulsars from the Earth and you have a gravitational wave passing through space-time near Earth, the Earth's position is jittering around a little bit. So in one moment, the Earth is a bit closer to one pulsars and further away from the other pulsars and vice versa. So the arrival time of a pulse at our telescope on Earth depends, therefore, what happens to the space-time around the Earth. And so if you can see a variation, systematic variation of our pulse arrival times, we can therefore infer the action of a gravitational wave on the space-time around Earth. And so, in fact, it's like a using the pulsar Earth connection, so to speak, as the arms of a huge cosmic gravitational wave detector, which is uh, very sensitive. And that detector is because of particular reasons, mostly sensitive to gravitational waves in the nanohertz frequency regime. So that's very long period then. They take years to complete one whole oscillation. That's right. The period of a gravitational wave is a few years and so the nanohertz regime is, is lower than the microhertz regime that LISA, the space-based detector, will be sensitive to, and much, much smaller than the kilohertz regime that the ground-based detectors like LIGO or GEO are sensitive to. And so, therefore, the pulsar experiment, we call it a pulsar timing array, is sensitive to a frequency range that is nicely complementary to the other experiments. And, in fact, no other experiment is at the moment accessible at that frequency range. And what sort of things would we hope to learn if we were able to detect the gravitational waves around us at those sorts of frequencies? You learn two things. You learn firstly about the sources that have created that gravitational wave signal that you try to detect. And in our case, that's most likely to be the orbital motion of two supermassive black holes when two galaxies collided and merged in early galaxy evolution in the earlier universe. So you will learn about how often it happens and what are the properties of these black holes and so on. But we also, if you have enough signal to noise, I should say, we can also use these gravitational waves to study the properties of gravitational waves as such. Probably this will not be possible in, in the first detection experiments, where we simply are sort of competing with all the other experiments to be the first or having a direct detection. But once we have enough signal-to-noise, you can study the polarization characteristics of gravitational waves. Is it really the two polarizations that we know from GR? What is the mass of a graviton? Does it have any mass? Because general relativity uh, says the mass is zero. And so you can 
really look at the fundamental properties of gravitational waves once you have detected them with pulsars. And the irony is that at the moment, the only evidence that we have that gravitational wave exists is an indirect evidence from the shrinkage of the orbit of binary pulsars that we already discussed. Here in this case, pulsars would also then be the first way of directly detecting gravitational waves. So it would be quite nice if we could sort of complete the loop. But yes, we are in competition with all the other experiments as well. And it's something that's very much at the limit of what we could do with our current technology. So how are people trying to make it that bit more sensitive to the gravitational waves and improve the timing so that we can get a detection? Yeah, you're right. We are sort of just about at the detection limit that we would expect for a signal of a stochastic background of gravitational waves from binary black holes. So we just need a little bit of more sensitivity. And in principle, there are only a few ways of doing this. You can try to find more pulses and increase your sample that you do. We'll try to do that with the service that I just mentioned before. And the other thing is just to build bigger and better telescopes. Unfortunately, for instance, the receivers that we use, they're already as good as quantum mechanics allows, so we can't improve the receivers. So the only way forward is the increase of collecting area of our telescopes. And that's difficult, of course. On the long-term plan, of course, we hope that we can use the square kilometer array to do our experiment. They would have a collecting area of about 200 times the global telescope, and then it will be easy. It will be trivial to detect gravitational waves. But of course, we don't want to wait that long. So within Europe, we have an experiment that we call the Large European Array for Pulsars, where we try to combine the large 100-meter class dishes that we have in Europe to form a single 200-meter-sized dish. That would be as big as an illuminated Arecibo telescope, but that can look at the whole sky, or at least most of the sky. And therefore, that should give us fact of a few more sensitivity for our experiment and that may just be the tipping point to make a detection possible so we'd be correlating the signals together from all those telescopes a little bit like interferometry that's right it's very much like interferometry although we don't produce an interferometric picture so we don't produce an image but we actually just face connect the telescopes and add the signals coherently to form a 200 meter size dish. So it's very similar, but slightly different to interferometry, yes. You said it was a stochastic background, which is kind of a, a random collection of gravitational waves from all kinds of different sources that we're hoping to detect. So as it is a, a random background noise of gravitational waves, how is it that we're able to pick out the signature of gravitational waves? Because in principle, what happens is you see the polarization characteristics of gravitational waves. It will move the Earth in a specific way that correlates the signal of different pulses on the sky. In the general activity, we expect that gravitational waves have a quadruple moment, the lowest multiple. That means that we should see pulses that are in the same direction or 180 degrees to each other should be correlated in the times of arrival and should be of pulses that have an angle of 90 degrees on the sky to each other should be anti-correlated. That's why we need to observe many pulses at the same time to detect this correlation between this data. Once you find this correlation curve, you can be sure that you have detected gravitational waves 
because the signature is quite unique and quite different from instance from clock errors or anything else that may affect the experiment. We wish to all the pulsar timers luck in detecting gravitational waves. Do you think that we could be first to do it? It would be a close call, I think. I mean, we are, of course, also working together internationally to uh, improve our chances. But indeed, we have a small window of opportunity until advanced LIGO will come online, which will happen around 2015 or so. And uh, advanced LIGO should have the sensitivity where they should be able to detect uh, gravitational wave events quite frequently. But maybe this is just enough time to improve our sensitivity limits for pulsar timing and therefore be there first. It would be nice. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for completing the circle after five years and being interviewed again for the Jogcast. I hope that won't be the last five years I <laughs> talked about. So maybe you can talk about five years and we discuss uh, the effect of gravitational waves then. Yeah, five years from now. <laughs> Wonderful. Okay, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks for that, Mark. Now, we have had some questions from the listeners on the forum, and uh, we thought that for this fifth anniversary show, we would actually answer them. <laughs> so, Yeah, we never normally do. As opposed to ignoring them. <laughs> <laughs> so the first question comes from Earth Unit. Jen, if you had a chance to visit any telescope on Earth, obviously apart from Jodrell Bank, uh, which one would it be and why? Well, until this summer, I would have said the Very Large Array in New Mexico, but then I got to go there. Yay! So Yay. that's one crossed off the list. I don't know. Um, Arecibo would be pretty cool. Uh, Not an optical telescope? Mm, yeah, optical telescopes on top of my... Any telescope is good to visit, and I've been quite lucky that I've managed to get to quite a few this year. So in January, I went to Turun in Poland and got to go up in the telescope there and there was snow in there and I had to try really hard not to throw snowballs at my friend Mike Peel as he was actually trying to do work um, <laughs> and then in the summer I got to go to the VLA and then later on in the summer we did our tour of the e-Merlin telescopes which will hopefully be in a jobcast video very very soon so I've actually done a lot of the telescopes I'd like to do. So why would you like to visit Arecibo? Because it's huge and awesome <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's quite a good reason. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of liking the idea of taking the E-Merlin road trip a bit further and maybe doing a, a tour of the very large baseline array across America, which would take a lot more money and time than the E-Merlin trip. You'd also have trip. a flight to get to Hawaii, I think, as well. Yeah, but that could be quite fun. I don't know. I mean, visiting Hubble would be really cool, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it would. Um, Earth Unit conveniently um, phrased their question to say, any telescope on Earth, so... Orbiting no the Earth. Earth. Oh, come um, on, low Earth orbit, it's not that far away. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Megan. It's only a couple of hundred miles. <laughs> yeah. That's what, George <laughs> Cambridge? It's nothing. You've done that already. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what about everyone else? What telescopes would you like to visit and why? Can we visit the SKA yet? Um, well, as a site hasn't been chosen, um, but, no. But you can visit the precursors because there are telescopes already on both sites. So you go visit them. So Australia and South Africa... That would be good. Yep. I'd like to go visit Alma. Yes, that would be cool. But don't, don't you need oxygen to go up there? Yeah. That's kind of scary. It'd be fun, though. Yeah. Imagine how dark the sky would be up there, 5,000 metres up in the Chilean Andes. Because Adam's working for Alma now. I think he's really hoping that he'll get to go up there sometime. I'd quite like to go see the VLT. What does VLT stand for? The Very Large Telescope. I love astronomy acronyms. I know. <laughs> 
Of course, once the um, overwhelmingly large telescope, or the extremely large telescope, whatever we're calling it these days, um, once they get built, it would be quite nice to see one of those as well. A 42-metre optical telescope is going to be something incredibly impressive. So the next question is from Rapid Eye, and I think we might have covered this slightly in your interview, but Megan, how does it feel to be on your head all the time? <laughs> I get a bit dizzy <laughs> from time to time. Um, no, it's fun down here. It's it's weird thinking of everybody else up in the Northern Hemisphere freezing their various bits of anatomy off when I'm sitting down here baking in 30 degrees. So Rapid Eye also had a question for Stuart, which was, how is life after the Jodcast? Is it worth living? I'm not entirely sure that I am in my life after the Jodcast yet. <laughs> no, we I keep still seem to back. be hanging around. <laughs> yeah. So um, I'm not entirely sure how to answer that question. But yes, life is, is good. I've not quite left the Jodcast yet. So we had a question from Solar Crescent saying, Megan, Ian and Jen, why astronomy? Well, we have no Ian, but Megan and Jen, why astronomy? Okay. I always liked science when I was a kid. But, you know, chemistry, you get to play in a lab. Biology, you play in a lab. Physics, you play with balances and weights and all the rubbish you play with at, you know, at uni. But you do astronomy and you've got the entire universe as your lab. Come on, how cool is that? What better reason could there be than you get to study everything that exists? I think that's cool. <laughs> Jen? I guess it's kind of similar to Megan. When I was in college, I couldn't decide between physics and chemistry because I like blowing stuff up in chemistry. But then realised that chemistry gets a bit boring after a while, so... I always liked knowing how th how things work and, you know, astrophysics is how does the universe work? The next set of questions are from Joe to the Oak. And uh, the first one is to Tim, but unfortunately he's not here. But the, the, the question to Tim I think is quite an interesting one. What question do you not want to answer? And I know that um, some of us have done work with, uh, with Ask an Astronomer both at Jodrell Bank and elsewhere. So... Um, Guys, open to the floor. What questions don't you want to answer about astronomy? I've noticed whenever I... I mean, I don't do that many public talks, but I go to quite a few, and I've noticed that no matter what the person is talking about, someone will always ask about dark matter. And that's got to be mm. kind of annoying. So that's more of an annoying question rather than one you don't want to answer. Generally, in having done Ask an Astronomer sessions at Jodrell Bank, um, one of the most popular questions generally from eight-year-olds, is about what happens when you fall into a black hole. That's not mm. a question I don't want to answer. I quite like that question. The questions I I find hardest to answer are the questions like what happened before the Big Bang. Yes, we had that one at Jogcast mm. Live, didn't we? Which is a, it's a very difficult question to answer, partly because we have no evidence for anything at the point of the Big Bang and whether the concept of a time before the beginning of time makes sense is is something I always have a hard time getting my head around, never mind trying to communicate that to anyone else. So Dave, uh, Joe the Oak also asked a question to you, which was, who do you prefer to play when acting? Actually, to bring in another question about why astronomy, the, the, the main thing I got into, the main reason why I got into space was because of Doctor Who. And uh, I have to admit that the, the part that I would really love to play is the Doctor. Otherwise, I really love my Shakespeare. That was great fun doing that. Um... So, I, But I generally get cast, because I do a lot of voice acting over the internet, I generally get cast, because I've got a British accent, as anyone mysterious, anyone evil, <laughs> or anyone that, that just knows that little bit too much. That sounds like quite an accurate so. description of you, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> the Jokas evil genius. So yes, I, I, I'm, I, I love playing 
anything sort of um, mysterious, sci-fi, things like that. The next question is to Adam, Claire, Mark and Chris, which we only have Mark here as a representative. And the question is, are you classed as newbies? I think that should be, are you classed as newbies still? Well, I think I've been involved with the Jogcast for more than a year, so... Yeah, I think probably, you've graduated beyond the Probably I've graduated. Um, I've probably been doing it almost as long as Jen, maybe not quite as long, and she's graduated, and I'm older. You'd be more in the background, I guess. Yeah. And we will hopefully be having a new lot of newbies uh, this year. We had a meeting just before Christmas, and quite a few people came along, so hopefully there'll be some new voices and some new editors. And I am older than Jen, and... Also, well, I'm, isn't do- everyone? I'm, I'm, a do- I'm a doctor and you're not. So, well, they haven't got the certificate saying that yet. Well, no. But if you're not a newbie, I don't think I am. Well, that's a good point, actually. We haven't had a show since Mark passed his Viva. So everyone, Mark has passed his Viva. Woo! Congratulations. Well does, everyone, does everyone know Congratulations. what that means? That's the oral examination at the end of a, a PhD. The examiners determine whether you're good enough to be awarded a PhD or not. And thankfully, Mark was means i'm going to get to wear a silly hat it's quite soon and we should also say that adam and chris both passed their vivas in december as well so they'll get to wear some silly hats soon as well hooray hooray <laughs> hooray so i guess leading leading nicely on uh, jody the oak also wanted to know what makes us laugh i'd like to say recording the jogcast <laughs> yeah i think that would have been my comment too yes failing I to agree. record the jodcast can be quite <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> and the final question we were asked on the forum is when was the last time you looked through a telescope which is a good question actually hmm. I think the last time I looked through a telescope was oh, ooh, actually I think it was in October of 2009 whoa wow I think the last time the last time I looked through a telescope would have been the 13th of August over in Texas when I saw all of the planets. Dave, Dave, Dave. Yes, hello. It's time to stop yes. talking about that. I, I'm answering a legitimate question <laughs> with the truth. <laughs> I haven't mentioned Snow Lab yet. Oh. Uh, <laughs> Megan? Um, well, the binoculars count because I had those out last night. But last time I actually got my telescope out was probably probably a couple of months ago now. I think I looked through a telescope a couple of months ago as well, trying to look at the moon, but uh, all we managed to see was buildings. The last time I think I technically looked through a telescope was a couple of weeks ago, because in first year lab, when I teach the lens optics experiment, part of it is they have a telescope that they have to put back together and then they mount it on a stand and have a look at buildings and things. So that's probably technically the last time I looked through a telescope. Looking at stuff actually in the night sky was probably the same as Stuart was probably October 2009, which was a long time ago. Actually, I can add that I know the next time I will look through a telescope will be the first week in January, because I'm going to be helping out taking telescopes into the streets of Cardiff. And I think you're all going to be doing something similar up in Manchester. We're hoping to do something at the Museum of Science and Industry on the 15th of January, which will hopefully also be Jod Pub, which we haven't organised because we're rubbish. Oh, well, people, I'm sure people can find out more on the forum when that yeah, gets we, decided. Yeah, we need to decide on a location, and Adam promised that he'd investigate pubs near Mosey and hasn't done it yet. Probably still investigating. Probably. Probably. So the reason why um, we're taking telescopes onto the streets is because the BBC are having a stargazing live event 
on the 3rd, 4th and 5th of January, so perhaps by the time people are listening to the, this episode of the Jodcast, it will already have happened. So if, if it's still, if the 3rd, 4th and 5th hasn't yet happened for you, then make sure you tune in on the evenings. I think it's 8 o'clock and I think it's on BBC2 and BBC HD as well. And it's going to be hosted by um, the University of Manchester's Brian Cox and Dara O'Brien, the comedian. So it should be good. And it's going to be held at Jodwell. There's a whole load of events going on across the country and they're actually going on, I think it's from the 3rd of January until the 16th of January. So even if you miss the TV programme, there's a good chance that when you listen to this, there will still be events going on. So if you check their website, you can find out details of all of those. If you want to participate in, in astronomy and science, there are two new Zooniverse projects as well that have, have come out in the last month or two. The first is the Milky Way project, which is using data from the Spitzer Space Telescope, and it's looking for cold, dusty bubbles in our galaxy, the Milky Way. Um, and you basically draw bubbles on the sky when you see them. Um, and the second project is Planet Hunters, which is at planethunters.org, and that's using data from the Kepler telescope, which is in space, and it's looking for exoplanets. So you can help find exoplanets by going to planethunters.org. So you can actually go and look for planets around other stars? Yep. Wow. That's cool. So it's very easy to do. As with most of the Zooniverse projects, or all of the Zooniverse projects, they're very easy to take part in. The websites are very straightforward, and you just follow the instructions and start looking through the data. Do you get to name a planet if you find it? I don't think so. We've had a couple of requests from Jogcast listeners to plug their events. So Jogcast listener Andrew Glester is involved with a project called Polar, which is a concert that's happening in Liverpool. Basically, they've got an orchestra, the Liverpool Philharmonic Orchestra playing and they've got high-definition films of polar bears and all that kind of exciting stuff. So it looks really cool. It's not really very relevant to the Jogcast, but it looks really nice, so go and check that out. Becca Nelson has told us about a star count being organised by the Campaign to Protect Rural England in conjunction with the Campaign for Dark Skies. Between the 31st of January and the 6th of February, they're asking people to count stars in the constellation of Orion, which is going to be in the southern sky, try and see how much light pollution there is in different parts of the country. If you want more details on that, go to www.cpre.org.uk slash starcount. But someone who knows Orion intimately... Here's Ian Morrison to tell us what you can see in the night sky. Well, Happy New Year. Let's hope we get some good viewing in during the remaining winter months. In fact, there are quite a number of uh, highlights in just the first four days of January, so I hope you've picked it up quickly. Now, over the last few months, I have actually reviewed a couple of books that I thought would help you in your observing, because we do need to know things to look at in the sky. And uh, very nicely, I've just been given a brand new book to review. So I've got a free copy, which is even better. And it really is very good. It's, it's written by Philip S. Harrington, who's an associate editor for the American Astronomy Magazine and has, in fact, for a long time, done a column called Binocular High Nights. Anyway, the book's called Cosmic Challenge, The Ultimate Observing List for Amateurs. And in it, he includes 187 individual challenges with your unaided eye, with binoculars, with a small scope, with a medium scope, and with a very big scope. And uh, these really are challenges. But the point is, even if you can't see them, perhaps with your unaided eye, it means you could probably see them with binoculars. But something that became very aware to me recently was that if you've got a bright sky because of light pollution or perhaps the moon, 
if you're looking at a faint object whose surface brightness is less than the brightness of the sky, it doesn't matter what size telescope you try and use, you won't see it. I tried to have a look at M33, which is a face-on spiral. Under dark conditions, it's quite easy to see. But from my back garden in Macclesfield, a 12-inch telescope couldn't pick it out at all. So the key thing for observing many of these challenges is to get out somewhere where it's really dark, away from light pollution, and hopefully when the sky is fairly free of water vapour and dust, when it's transparent, as they say. But if it is, it is quite surprising what you can see with your eyes and with even a small pair of binoculars. A lovely book, Cosmic Challenge by Philip S. Harrington, Cambridge University Press, about £27.50. And there's 400 pages, lots of uh, pictures. And even when it's um, not dark because of moonlight, he has some lunar challenges as well, things you can look at on the moon's surface, such as the, uh, the straight wall. It's an interesting object you see twice. It's around first and third quarter. You see it in different ways. As Patrick Moore famously once said about the straight wall, neither is it a wall nor is it straight, but it's a good thing to look at. So there we go, something to get, perhaps not in time for Christmas, but as a New Year present to help you with your observing during the year. Well, we have a lovely skyscape in January, as I'm sure you know, and I've talked about this group of stars a lot, so I won't spend too much time on them. But rising high in the sky, in the middle part of the evening, you've obviously got Orion the Hunter. The upper left star, which actually is Orion's right shoulder, is the red supergiant Betelgeuse. Its diameter is about the diameter of the orbit of Jupiter. His left knee is the bright star Rigel, a blue supergiant, about 8,000 times brighter than our sun. The three stars that make up Orion's belt are excellent pointers. Up to the right you come to Taurus and the Hyades cluster, and beyond that you have the Pleiades. Two beautiful things to look at, particularly the Pleiades with binoculars is a lovely object to observe from a dark sky. The brightest star that you see in the direction of the Hyades cluster is Aldebaran, which is a red giant, although in fact red giants tend to be rather orange. In fact, it's nothing to do with the Hyades cluster. It's actually about halfway between us and the cluster. So that's one reason why it looks so bright. So that's Taurus the bull. Aldebaran is the eye of the bull. If you follow up through the horns of the, the bull, you come almost overhead to the constellation of Auriga with its bright yellowish star Capella at the top. The Milky Way runs through Auriga and down to the sort of left of, of Orion. And because of that, there are quite a number of nice clusters. Three, in fact, are in Messier's catalogue, M36, 37 and 38. And on a dark night, they can be picked out with binoculars. can look very nice, particularly M38, I think. It's a nice little cluster to use to look at with a small telescope. Down to the left of Auriga, we have the constellation of Gemini, the twins, with Castor and Pollux being the brightest of the two stars. If you take Castor, the upper one, and sort of think of where his knee might be, which is down towards uh, Taurus and the top of Orion, there's a nice cluster there called M35, which, again, binoculars will pick up on a dark night. Below Gemini, we have Canis Minor, just one bright star, which is Procyon, and a couple of others on either side, but not really very much following down from 
Canis Minor, we come to Canis Major, with, of course, the brightest star we see in the Northern Hemisphere, Sirius. Often appears to twinkle or scintillate a lot, because it never gets very high above the horizon. And we sometimes get people ringing Jodrell Bank saying, we think we've seen an, a UFO. Often that's Sirius. If you look at Sirius with binoculars on a clear night and just drop down a couple of degrees, you find quite a nice little cluster called M41. With a small telescope, you can see that the largely blue stars have got one red giant in the centre. It makes a lovely colour contrast. And if I come back up to Orion, just below the central star of Orion's belt, we have what is called the Sword of Orion, with that lovely region of nebulosity, the Orion Nebula. It's basically a birthplace of stars. At its heart is a little group of stars called the Trapezium. They're very hot. Their ultraviolet light is exciting the hydrogen gas in the surrounding region and making it glow a lovely red. But sadly, of course, we can't see that with our eyes. They're not very sensitive to the red, but they show up beautifully in photographs. So there we are, a very nice region of the sky to look at, and uh, I hope you enjoy doing that. Well, what about the planets? Well, it's not so bad this month, actually. I'm sure you've been seeing Jupiter in the southern sky over the last few months, and it's now beginning to slip down a bit towards the southwestern sky after sunset, but you can hardly miss it at a magnitude of minus 2.3. It's becoming a little bit small, a bit fainter during the month, but not significantly so, because it's quite a long way away from us. By the end of January, it will actually be setting about four hours after the sun, so you have to see it fairly low in the west. I've been saying for a while that Jupiter had appeared to lose its south equatorial belt, but apparently that's now coming back. It doesn't actually stretch all the way around, so you may not see it, but uh, a week or so ago, about a 100 degrees, about a third of the way round, had got the dark band of the south equatorial belt. Uh, by the end of January, it may in fact be fully restored. So that's quite a nice thing to look at. On the 10th of January, in fact, a crescent moon passes just above Jupiter. That might make a nice thing to have a look at. But what about Saturn? Well, it's a pre-dawn object, rising at midnight at the beginning of January and by about 11 o'clock by January's end. So, in fact, you could think about waiting up to see it rise. But, in fact, I've been looking at it in the early morning in the last month or so and with a very good go-to telescope was actually able to observe it in, in broad daylight but you've got to know exactly where to look, and that's where a go-to scope comes into it, and using fairly high magnification to try and damp down the brightness of the sky. But it was there, I promise you. Its brightness increases a little bit during the month. It's going to come up to plus 0.7, and as I've said before, the rings are now opening out. They're about 10 degrees to the line of sight at the beginning of January, perhaps 11 degrees by the month's end. And with a small telescope under good seeing conditions, you may well now be able to spot Cassini's division again, which is a dark band that separates the A and the B rings. Mercury, in fact, passed in front of the Sun, that's called inferior conjunction, on the 20th of December. And because it's the inferior conjunction, it actually comes around fairly quickly into the morning sky, and in fact reaches its greatest angular separation from the Sun on the 9th of January then it will have an elevation of about 9 degrees as the sun rises. So in the hour perhaps before sunrise, in the middle week or so of January, you have a chance of actually spotting Mercury in the morning sky. You'll probably need binoculars, look low down in the southeast, given a very good horizon. So there's a chance of seeing Mercury. Not the best apparition this year, but at least a chance to see it. 
Mars is, in fact, behind the sun. The whole of this month is directly behind the sun. That's a superior conjunction at the very beginning of February. So, in fact, January, February, we haven't really got a chance of seeing it. Well, you must have seen Venus in the pre-dawn sky in the last month or so. It's been shining brilliantly. In fact, its maximum brightness was at minus 4.9 a few weeks ago. But at the beginning of January, it's dropped down to minus 4.5. That's still pretty good. It rises well before sunrise, and uh, you can see it fairly high in the sky. Its angular size is 26 arc seconds at the beginning of the month, and about 40% is illuminated. And it's well worth looking at with a small telescope just to see this rather moon-like image. You don't see any features on the surface, but it's nice to actually see the phase. What happens during the month, it reduces to 21 arc seconds, but at the same time, the illumination on the surface increases. So the brightness stays pretty much the same. It only drops to about minus 4.3. So still a very nice object to look at in the mornings. Well, finally, a few highlights, and they're all at the very beginning of the month, I'm afraid. The first thing is during the evenings of Jan the 1st to the 3rd, and hopefully one of those might be clear, and you should, of course, as we've said, see Jupiter. But if you use binoculars to have a look at Jupiter, you'll see a little bright spot just above it, about half a degree above. That is, in fact, the planet Uranus. So if you've never seen Uranus, this is an exceedingly good time to try because you've got this fantastic sort of beacon in the sky to tell you precisely where to look. And if you can see it on more than one of those three nights, you'll see Uranus moving across above Jupiter. In fact, of course, Jupiter's moving to the left in front of us. But it appears, if you center on Jupiter, that Uranus is actually moving to the right, a little bit up to the left on the first, almost above on the second, a bit to the right on the third. So a good chance to see a rather nice little planet. With a telescope, chance of seeing a small disk, slightly turquoisey in colour. We looked at that just the other day, and it really looked rather nice. On the evening of the third, morning of the fourth, we have a meteor shower. And as we shall see in just a minute, this is at new moon. And therefore, there'll be no light in the sky to actually upset what we might see. So the early morning of the 4th, you have a chance, if clear, of observing what's called the quadranted meteor shower. That's called that name because the radiant, which is where the meteors appear to come from, used to be in a constellation called the quadrant after Tycho Brahe's mural quadrant. He used to measure the elevation of the stars as they passed due south on the meridian, and hence, if he knew the time when that happened, he could actually plot their positions. And he made, as I'm sure you know, a wonderful catalogue of the stars. The great thing he did was to plot the positions of the wandering stars, the planets, during a 20-year period. And that was the database that allowed Kepler to produce the laws of planetary motion, which again helped lead Newton to produce his law of gravity. Anyway, it's no longer called the quadrant. It's actually part of the constellation Bootes. But basically, the evening of the third is when the peak is meant to occur. Look towards the northeast, perhaps, and let's just hope it's clear. There'll be no moon. You'll have a good chance of seeing some of the meteor trails. And finally, once you've seen those during the evening and perhaps the very, very early morning around midnight, Get up for sunrise on the 4th, because there's a partial solar eclipse. At dawn on the 4th of January, the sun will rise with the moon eclipsing much of its left half. As it rises higher in the sky, 
the moon will gradually move away to the left and leaves the sun at about 0934, depending a bit where you live in the UK. That's actually called fourth contact. Now, you've got to be very, very careful to observe an eclipse. Never, ever look directly at the sun with your eyes. And even worse, never try with binoculars or a telescope. You could easily lose the sight in one or both eyes. What you can do, one nice thing, it's very safe, is you take a shoebox. At one end, you make an opening and you mount a pair of preferably cheap binoculars and you use them to form an image of the sun on the opposite side of the shoebox. If you then put the cover on the box but cut out on the opposite end of the binoculars a nice slot, you can look in there and actually see the uh, projected image of the sun eclipsed partially by the moon. If you have a telescope, you can actually buy solar filters that fit over the objective lens. They're quite safe. But never, ever use what used to be around 20, 30 years ago, things called sun filters, which you screwed into your eyepiece. They can easily shatter and break. Eclipse glasses, you may have some of those around. They work fine, but just check there aren't any pinholes, hold them up to the sky, and make sure there's no light coming through them. Anything else you have to be very careful with because although some films may appear to reduce the brightness of the sun so you can see it, they may not reduce the infrared and that can actually damage your eye more so in fact than the light. So be very, very careful, preferably use image projection to see it and uh, if it is clear that morning it will be a very nice thing to wake up to. So have a very nice January, speak to you again in a month's time. Thank you, Ian. And now to hear what you can see in the Southern Hemisphere, here's John Field. We are now past summer solstice, and our nights are starting to get longer. The seasons are caused by the axial tilt of the Earth towards the Sun. When the Southern Hemisphere is leaning towards the Sun, we have our summer, and the Northern Hemisphere experiences its winter. The tilt of the Earth is 23.5 degrees to the Sun's equator. The planets Mars, Saturn and Neptune all had similar tilts to the Earth and experienced seasons. Mercury, Venus and Jupiter are almost vertical to the Sun's equator and will not experience seasons. Perhaps the most bizarre seasons are on the planet Uranus. Tilted at almost 90 degrees, its seasons and day are the same, approximately 20 years. The angle of the axial tilt for Uranus may be due to an impact on an object not too long after its formation. In our evening sky, Jupiter, the largest planet, still reigns supreme in our northwestern sky. It takes Jupiter 12 Earth years to orbit the Sun, moving on average from one zodiac constellation to another each year as it moves along the ecliptic. On January the 7th, 1610, Galileo turned his telescope toward the planet Jupiter and saw four small bright stars nearby. Over the next few nights, he plotted their positions. He observed that they moved along with and around Jupiter and were not members of the fixed background stars. He deduced that these were moons of this planet and they orbited around Jupiter, meaning that not all objects orbited around the Earth as was the current accepted theory. You can easily observe these four moons in a pair of 7x50 or 10x50 binoculars or small telescope. Why not replicate Galileo's experience and view and plot the positions of the moons during January? Nearby during the first week of January will be the planet Uranus. 
It will appear as a bright star below and to the right of Jupiter on the 1st of January and will be to the left by the 10th. You can also plot the changing position of this planet as it wanders along the ecliptic during January. Gemini is a bright zodiac constellation that rises in the northeast during our summer evenings. In Greek mythology, these twins, Castor and Pollux, represented the sons of Queen Leda and were half-brothers whose fathers were King Tidanerus of Sparta and Zeus, King of the Gods. They travelled with Jason on his epic journey in search of the Golden Fleece. To find Gemini, look to the lower right of Orion. Two bright stars will be seen about five degrees, a half a fist width apart. A rectangle of fainter stars stretching towards Orion can be seen forming the bodies of the twins. For us, of course, the twins spend most of their time standing on their heads. The lower of the two stars, Castor, is a multiple star system 52 light years away from us. For a small telescope, this star reveals itself to be two bright stars. Each of these stars is a spectroscopic binary, and with a small telescope you can find a faint red dwarf nearby that is also a binary star. This makes Castor a sextuplet star system. Pollux is the higher and the brighter of the two and is a nearby star only 35 light years away. M35 is a bright star cluster visible to the unaided eye on a dark night near the feet of Castor. Binoculars or small telescopes reveal up to 200 stars in this cluster that is estimated to be 2,600 light years away. It covers an area equivalent of the full moon. Nearby and visible in larger telescopes is the open cluster NGC 215A. This was discovered in 1784 by William Herschel. Due to its appearance, this was once thought to be a globular cluster. A nice globular cluster can be found hiding in Lepus, the hare. This constellation hides below, or for us, above the feet of Orion. The constellation resembles a rectangle that is pinched along its length by its two brightest stars. Alpha and Beta Leporis are about 900 and 159 light years away, respectively. If you draw a line through Alpha to Beta and follow that line upwards for the same distance, you will come to the fine globular cluster M79 or NGC 1904. It appears as a fuzzy 8th magnitude star in small telescopes. Larger telescopes reveal the fainter stars that make up the cluster and is estimated to be 44,000 light years away. Nearby is the multiple star Herschel 3752, consisting of three stars of varying brightness. In early January, the quadrantic meteor shower radiates from the constellation of Boötes the Herdman. Unfortunately for New Zealanders, we are not well placed to view this meteor shower. In our early morning sky during January, we will see the planets Venus and Saturn. From the team at Carter Observatory, we wish you all a happy and prosperous 2011. Thanks for that, John. And now we move on to that area of the show where we look at your feedback. And in fact... Talking of far-off countries, we have had a postcard, believe it or not, a postcard from Rod, who is travelling in Japan and catching up with a backlog of Jodcasts. He says, Unfortunately, neither Japan nor Glasgow, where I normally listen to the Jodcast, are very good for observing the night sky, but listening to the Jodcast has really rekindled my interest in astronomy. So thank you for that, Rod. I'm hoping that there's, you know, a load of Christmas cards that just got stuck in the snow and will be there waiting for us when we return to the office next week. As well as the fifth fifth birthday cards as well. As well as all the birthday cards and hopefully some cake. Yay! <laughs> okay, so we've had an email from Nick Peckham, who um, said he really enjoyed the latest Jodcast and was wondering if, uh, following on from the radio meteor detection, if it's possible to turn an Android smartphone into a meteor detector. 
Because uh, if you could, then you could have thousands of people running it across the country. Which is a really cool idea. And there was a, something similar that you found, wasn't there, Stuart, about um, distributed observatory? If you go to www.distobs.org, D-I-S-T-O-B-S.org, um, someone had the idea to make the world's largest cosmic ray telescope by using smartphones, effectively, to look for cosmic ray impacts in the cameras of the smartphones during the night when it was dark and you put your, your camera facing down. And a cosmic ray would go through and sometimes strike the CCD or the CMOS chip in your camera. And then you'd be able to send that information back and try to, to reconstruct particle showers, basically. I'm not quite sure what the status of that is at the moment. They've not had any updates on their website for over a year now. So it might be that, that they've, they've given up on that. All the, the, the source code is open source. And so if someone wants to take that on, I guess someone could and develop it some more. It sounds like a really interesting idea. I'm not quite sure yeah, if it, it would work for meteors. No, it's it's a really cool idea, but with meteors, the trouble is it would really eat the battery of your phone because you have to be doing lots and lots of calculations constantly to actually try and pick these things up, and you'd need a radio as well. That's how it works, is you, you tune to a radio station you can't normally hear. So you'd need a radio, and you would need a long... Well, basically, you'd have to plug it into the mains, really. Yeah, so otherwise your phone would go flat. Yeah, in theory, it could work. Um, I don't know how practical it would be in reality, though. Well, there already is a way you can submit reports if you see something through the, um, I think the International Meteor Observatory have a form you can report, but the British Astronomical Association Meteor section also have a, an online form. So if you do see something exciting, especially if you see a fireball, then go and submit the details there and they can add it all together and work out what the trajectory was. So what sort of information would you need to remember for reporting on that form? You'd need to know roughly where in the sky it was, how fast it was moving, how bright it was, um, the time as accurately as you know it. I forget Is that how fast in terms of how how long it was visible or in angular speed or? Yeah, sort of how how long it was visible or how fast it actually moved across the sky and how long the trail actually persisted for once the meteor itself disappeared as well because that trail can actually last for quite a long time in some cases with big fireballs it can last for for many many seconds. So if you see something, go and check out the form. And we'll put a link on the show notes. We've had an email from Andrew Thomas who says the Jodcast is an important link in the chain between researcher and public. Um, and he enjoys our work very, very much indeed. So thank you very much. Um, <clears throat> someone else that's been enjoying the Jodcast is Stanley Fertig, who is listening from Brooklyn. And he emailed us to say, just heard the December 2010 Jodcast on New York subway on the way to and from work. And the Seven Dwarf Planets intro was the best you've ever done, in my opinion. You should do a long form version of it. It's always good to hear when people like the intro outros. Um, and uh, yes, it was a, that was a great one to do. It was a lot of fun. Sadly, this month's is going to be the last um, because I am hanging up my microphone. Well, no. just like everyone else. Oh, Dave. It, yeah, I know. I'll be back. You know I will be. But, it's um, like how Stuart said that he was, he was giving up. Exactly. So, uh, I didn't say I was giving up. I just said I was, I was leaving. <laughs> but not the Jodcast. So I, I have now got a job in the real world, sadly. Well, no, it's good. But it means that I, I will be less often on the Jodcast than I am at the moment. And after a year of producing intros, Fiona Thrail, who has done a marvellous job, um, is having to, to give up on that and, and go on and do other things. So, yes... This month's intro will be the last for a while. Well, Dave, I'd like to say thank you for 
five years of intros, I think almost every single first of the month show has had an intro and an outro. Yes, it has, yes. And even, even thank you to, to you and Fiona for all that hard effort you've put in over the years. It's been an absolute pleasure. I wonder if any listeners can think of anything we can do instead of the intros, but that would be a bit easier for those of us without much acting skills. Or creative <laughs> talent. <laughs> so over on Facebook, we finally had some activity. Thank you, guys. Matt Helm says the December episode was fantastic. Fantastic in capital letters, which is nice to hear. Um, Sarah Cornell really enjoyed finding out what jobcasters do when they're not jobcasting. Thanks also to Michael Kelly and Owen Roberts for your comments. And Nick Dye's New Year's resolution apparently is to listen to more jobcasts. So I guess we can't give up anytime soon. So if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. You can leave a message on the forum at forum.jodcast.net. You can comment on the Facebook page at jodcast.net slash Facebook. We're on Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. And YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. And you can also add your astronomy pictures to our Flickr group at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. We want to see some jodcast t-shirts in unusual places. And that brings our fifth anniversary jodcast to an end. And so thanks must go to Michael Kramer for being interviewed. And the editors were Jen, Megan, me and Mark. And I would like to apologise for a dreadful American accent. I was listening to it and I was thinking... (laughs) (laughs) And I'm not Clark Gable. Uh, Oh well. And before we finish, I would just like to reiterate that Jod Pub will be on the 15th of January at a pub near to the Museum of Science and Industry. And finally, before we finish, I'd just like to say thank you to Dave for five years of service to the Jodcast and producing so many great thank intros you very and outros. Much. Yes, thank I'll you, Dave. I will be back. You know me. Good. <laughs> <laughs> and until next time, until the February issue, Jod on, everybody, and a happy new year. Bye. 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 It seems we've been across purposes, doesn't it? But it's no use now. As long as there's Milan in your heart, there's a chance we might be happy. When that went, it took all the professional respect and everything. Oh, Dave. Dave, please don't say that. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for everything. You think that by saying I'm sorry, all the past can be corrected? Dave! Dave, where are you going? I'm going to the real world. Back where I belong. Please. Please take me with you. No. No, I'm through with everything here. I want peace. I want to see if somewhere there is something left in life with cheese and funny voices. Do you know what I'm talking about? No. I only know that I respect you. That's your misfortune. Dave, if you go, where shall I go? What shall I do? Frankly, my dear, I don't give a clean rating on iTunes. Goodbye, Jen. Jot on. <laughs>